Welcome to the Serial Audiobook Alive, an unabridged podcast of Book One in the Generations Trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler. Performed by Emma Galvin. This novel is available in print, ebook, or as a full length audiobook. For links to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Audible, please visit scottsigler.com slash alive. 42. I don't know what I expected to see, but I did not expect a blank room. There was nothing in here, nothing but a black sparkly floor and four black sparkly walls. This can't be right. What have I done? I walk in. There has to be something here. There has to be. There is not. I turn to the others. Spingate and Gaston are standing in the doorway, looking around. Bishop still holds the monster that is myself. There's nothing here, I say. What do we do now? I feel lost. I let everyone here. I have made a horrible mistake. This shuttle must be where the monsters wanted us to go. Matilda tricked me. The monsters will catch us, take us away. We will all die. We will all be overwritten. Our brief fear-filled lives will cease to exist. Gaston smiles, not his arrogant smile, not the joking grin he has when he tries to annoy Bishop. This smile is genuine. It is sweet. It is a smile of pure wonder, the smile of a 12-year-old boy who remembers something truly astounding. He walks forward. The room comes alive. Lights flash everywhere, not just on the walls and floor and ceiling, but in the air itself. Streams and streaks of color swell and move, turn and twist. Red and blue and green and yellow lines and dashes, glowing dots. It overwhelms my senses. A new voice speaks from nowhere and everywhere all at once. A voice that is neither male nor female. Welcome, Captain Xander. Gaston walks up to me. He has never been this handsome. Joy radiates from him, makes me want to hug him. Kiss his cheeks. Lights play across his face. Glowing dots dance on his eyebrows, his lips, moving when he moves as if they are a part of him. He takes my hand and squeezes it tight. Em, you did it, he says. His eyes gleam. He looks at me like I am his hero. You saved us. Spingate and I will take it from here. What does he mean? I, Gaston, I don't. Xander, he says. My name is Xander. He raises his right hand above his head. Yellow and green lines bathe his fingers and palm, as if he's wearing a glove woven from light. He again flashes that stunning smile at me, gestures to the room that has come alive. Em, you got us here, he says. No one knew what to do, but you did. The madness of this room makes no sense to me. Shouldn't I understand some of this? O'Malley sees my dismay and speaks for me. You're right, Gaston. M got us here. Do you know what to do next? The glowing boy shrugs. Not yet, but I have some ideas. I think I know how to fly. I just have to remember. Spingate stands next to him. She, too, is painted in light. I'll help Xander, she says. I look at my hands and see that they're normal. There are no lights on me. There are none on O'Malley, either or on Bishop. Spingate looks tired and drained, but elated as well. She glows like a living torch, 
She is so happy, it's impossible not to fall in love with her all over again from simply looking at her face. Go talk to the others, Em, she says. Tell them everything will be okay. Tell them, tell them that we're going home. Home, she's right. The Zolodo, with its garden and its coffin rooms, its pigs and grown-ups and butchery. This place is not ours. Neither is the dead planet the monsters left behind so long ago. Those places were never our homes. We were created to live on the planet below. We were made to walk on Omeokan. An arm around my shoulders, O'Malley guiding me out of the strange room. I walk with him. I stop at the wheel door and look back. Spingate and Gaston shine like a pair of angels. The black walls and black ceiling have vanished. In their place, I see many pictures floating free, so realistic you could reach into them, touch whatever was there. One picture shows the chamber outside this shuttle. Another, the dark hallways we just walked through. Another, the brown and blue and green planet below. And yet another shows a long spinning copper cylinder, the massive ship we are still inside of. O'Malley pulls gently, gets me moving again. He guides me to the shuttle's entryway, where Bishop is waiting, Matilda still cradled in his arms. The platform is empty. At the bottom of the ramp, El Safani, Coyotl, and Farrar stand guard. Bishop leans in close. O'Malley and I talked, he says. Do we do it in the new coffin room, where everyone can see, or outside the shuttle? Matilda has given up the fight. She lies limp, awaiting her fate. She looks at me her one good eye a swirling red jewel. My legs won't hold me up much longer. They shake from fatigue. I need to find some space in the aisle between the coffins. I need to lie down. I need to sleep. Wait, Bishop asked a question. Do we do it in the new coffin room? Do we do what exactly? He lifts Matilda slightly, answering my question by showing her to me anew. Gaston can fly the shuttle, he says. So we don't need her anymore. Matilda's body shivers. I hear the sound of bones scraping on bone. Bishop is asking if you want to kill me quietly or execute me in front of the others, she says. Do it in front of the others, little leader. It is important you show people what happens if they cross you. The way she's speaking now, she thinks she's helping me. She thinks she's dying. I am her legacy, the part of her that will live on, and she wants that part to succeed, to have power. Matilda is telling me what she would do if our positions were reversed. Some people do not approve of being sacrificed. That's what she wants. She wants me to sacrifice her, make an example out of her so that everyone will fear me, fear and obey. All the bodies, all the death, the massacre of the Zolotl. How much of that was by her command? Matilda doesn't really think she murdered anyone at all. She thinks her butchery served a greater purpose. If this woman is me, how did she become like this? Did something happen to her after her 12th birthday that turned her into an obscenity? She is an appalling creature that shouldn't be allowed to exist. If anyone deserves to die, it is Matilda. But if I give that order, will it end with her? Who might be next and for what crimes? Matilda today for mass murder, and because she is a threat to us. If Aramovsky challenges my leadership again, does that make him a threat? 
The question isn't if I have the power to order death, because I obviously do. The question is, if I use that power now, will I use it again? The answer terrifies me worse than anything I've seen or experienced so far, because I can't deny the hard truth. The answer is yes. I shake my head. I am not her. I am not Matilda. I am M, and M has a choice to become something better. I point down the ramp. Leave her in the chamber. She led us to the shuttle. She did what we asked, so we let her live. O'Malley and Bishop stare at me like I'm crazy. She is our enemy, Bishop says. She wants to erase you. O'Malley nods vigorously. Bishop's right. Matilda has to die. They agree? The two boys don't agree about anything, and they find common ground when it comes to murdering a prisoner? Bishop, I get. He sees things in simple terms, kill or be killed terms. But I thought O'Malley was more complex. Disappointment wriggles uncomfortably in my chest. I said no. We're getting away. No one else dies. Once we're down on the surface, she can't follow us. She won't be able to hurt us anymore. My decision is final. Matilda nods, understanding. I'd forgotten, she says. Sacred Cintioto, bless me. I'd forgotten how idealistic I once was. I'm sparing her life, and she's mocking me? A scream, a battle cry, makes me jump. Elsafani, racing away from the base of the ramp, leaving Farrar and Coyotal to stare. The red-gray caked twins, screaming, waving bone clubs over their heads, sprinting toward the archway. There, a pair of wrinkled, coal-black monsters, walking in, each step a twitching, jittering, painful effort. One monster carries an axe, the other a jeweled scepter. They have found us. Elsafani, come back! My shout echoes through the room, but if the twins can hear me over their own violent howls, they don't respond. I start down the ramp, make it two steps before a boy's hand locks down on my arm. O'Malley, holding me, but I yank my arm free and hear my shirt sleeve rip. The ramp's hard points dig into my running feet. Bishop thunders down the ramp behind me. I'm halfway down when Spingate's shout stops me. She leans out of the shuttle entrance. Em, get everyone inside. We can see the hallway, more of them are coming. Gaston thinks the shuttle will protect us. Down the ramp, my feet slap against the metal floor. Elsafani halfway to their target. I look to the archway. My heart turns to ice. The two monsters weren't alone. Hundreds of them pour through, their movements stilted and halting, as if each step brings a bolt of agony. An army of ancient darkness, of diseased bodies that should have died centuries ago. And on some of their arms, silver bracelets with a long point that ends at their wrist. I stop. Bishop stops next to me, Matilda still in his arms. It's about damn time, she says, her voice full of appreciation and, possibly, hope that she might live through this after all. Captain Xander finally broke out the guns. Bishop's roar makes my best sound like a whisper. Elsafani, stop! His voice echoes off the floor, the ceiling, the walls, and again the twins don't hear. They charge, bellowing, brandishing their clubs. The pieces click together with a nearly audible snap. We beat the grown-ups in the garden because they didn't bring the weapons, 
because they wanted to take us alive. But now we've got the shuttle, their only way to reach Omeokan. How could I have been so stupid? They would rather kill most of us than let us strand them here forever. The monsters raise their arms. Bracelets glow with a white heat. The twins almost make it. A crackling sound I've never heard before, like a living animal boiled in oil. Then narrow cones of shimmering energy blaze from the bracelet tips. A white flash silhouettes Elsafani. Their backs are black shadows against a blinding light. I see this for a split second. Then I can see through their backs. The Elsafani battle cry ends forever. A hundred bloody pieces scatter across the floor, rolling and flopping to a wet stop at the monster's feet. A howl rips from my lungs, launched so hard and so instantly that my throat shreds and burns. Those butchers murdered my friends. Tears well up. Despair crushes me, compresses me, but I clench my teeth and force it away. There is no time. I grab Matilda's wrist, yank her out of Bishop's arms. The ancient creature falls hard to the floor. Everyone back inside. I sprint up the ramp. The circle stars are so fast they pass me by. O'Malley and I rush in. As soon as I'm through the door, I scream to my right. Gaston, get us out of here. Coyotl and Farrar run to the coffin room. Bishop and O'Malley stay with me in the corridor. The floor vibrates, shuttle doors closing. Through them, at the base of the ramp, I see Matilda Savage. She's lying on one hip, looking at me with her single swirling red eye. My creator stumbling, shambling people close in. They point their arms at me, the white glow of their bracelets building to a blinding shimmer. The shuttle doors hiss closed. One second, I am at the edge of death. The next, there are red metal walls, a hand's width from my face. I hear something hit the shuttle with a sizzling sound, but nothing comes through. Gaston's voice booms from everywhere and nowhere at once, comes from the shuttle itself. Get in those coffins. Get in and lie still. I'm being pulled. Bishop drags me toward the big room. I won't go into the darkness again. I can't. My hand is a fist. My punch drives square into Bishop's eye. I think of Latu in the fraction of a second before Bishop grabs my forearm so hard, I feel bones bend. Gaston's voice, roaring. Hang on, we're going home. Get in the coffins or you'll die. I try to yank my hands free, but Bishop's grip might as well be the metal bars that held me in my coffin. Bishop, let me go. I can't go in there, I can't. I am lifted, thrown over his wide shoulder. He carries me into the coffin room. I punch at him, try to kick him. I rake his back with my fingernails. Don't you dare, Bishop. Don't you leave me in the dark. I rake him again, feel his body on my fingers. I'm in the aisle now, coffins on my left and right. People who aren't already in coffins are scrambling to find empty ones. Hands grab my wrists. It's O'Malley. M, stop it. It will be all right. I lift my head, see deep blue eyes drowning in helpless fear. I feel my face twist into a wicked snarl. I hurl my hate at him. O'Malley, kill Bishop. He's trying to trap me in the dark and I'll die. I can't go back there. I fight and kick and twist, but the two boys are far stronger than me. Why don't they understand? Things bite in the darkness. The shadows want to hold me down and suffocate me. I'll be trapped again, trapped forever. 
This is a trick of Brewer's. He's working with Matilda to capture us all, to capture me and erase my mind. They will overwrite me, but that's not enough for them. They are going to put me in the dark first, to punish me, and... The world spins. It takes me a second to realize what's happening, to understand what the padding under my back means. My friends put me in a coffin. Hands hold me in place. I'm thrown to the left, smashed up against the padded wall. That wasn't the boys, it was the shuttle itself, moving. An instant of realization cuts through my blinding terror, lets me think straight for a brief moment. Gaston and Spingate, the shuttle is leaving the Solodal. They are getting us out of here. Bishop and O'Malley pin me down, using only enough strength to stop me from sitting up or lashing out at them. I'm in a coffin. I'm going into the darkness. My friends have betrayed me. I have to fight. I have to kill. A face close to mine, peering in at me. A small face. A girl. She's wearing a clean shirt. She has dark skin, jet black hair, dark eyes. There is a tooth circle on her forehead. It's Subiri. Em, it's going to be okay, she says. Don't be afraid. She smiles. The girl is so calm. None of this frightens her. I am older than she is. Shouldn't I be the one comforting her? I can't be in here, I say to Zubiri, as if the tiny girl can overpower Bishop or give orders to O'Malley. I can't be in a coffin again. Tell them. I want my voice to sound angry, dangerous, and threatening. But what comes out is a pathetic whine. I'm not commanding anybody. I'm begging. Zubiri shakes her head. It's not a coffin, M. It's a bed. You have to be in it right now. Do you know what G-forces are? I don't. I've never heard those words. I shake my head. It means that if you're not safely protected, you'll be thrown all over this cabin. Subiri's voice is soothing. She isn't worried at all, not even a little bit. When this shuttle flies, M, if you're not safe inside the coffin, you will probably die. She wants to help me. But to let her help me, I have to stay in this nightmare box. I look at Bishop. Be still, Em, he says. It will be all right. I look at O'Malley. You're safe, he says. You got us out. Now lie back so we can leave. I don't want you to die up here when we're so close to Omeocan. Omeocan. We're going down to the planet. That's what we were made for. The world lurches again, so violently that O'Malley, Bishop, and Zubiri tumble away, fall over and slide into other coffins. For a moment, no one is holding me down. I could run, but I do not. If I don't stay here, in this coffin, they will try to catch me. If Zubiri is right, the boys could die trying to keep me safe. Better I go mad in the darkness than see any harm come to Bishop and O'Malley. I close my eyes and force myself to stay still. The coffin's padded sides press in on me. My neck tingles, waiting for the needle sting that I know is moments away. This time, it won't be clogged. The poison will give me a fever cleaver, and I will die, burning and screaming. But I remain still. Gaston's voice rips the air. Last warning, people. We're leaving. I hear O'Malley scramble into the coffin on my right. Bishop lunges into the one on my left. On either side of me, a boy's hand reaches over the coffin's edge. 
My fingers seek out theirs. They intertwine. O'Malley holds my right hand. His skin is warm and soft. Bishop holds my left. His hands are rough and blistered. He squeezes so tight it hurts, but I don't mind. It makes me feel protected. I hear something, lift my head to see. A lid is sliding up from the foot of the coffin, slowly sealing me in. It moves past my knees, my thighs, my hips. I let go of both boys. I rest my hands on my chest, left over right. The lid slides over my face. All is dark. There is a click, then a hiss. The coffin presses into my sides, my back, my chest, and my face. A scream builds up inside me, unstoppable, the product of my body's instant and futile need to move, to fight my way free. Then I smell something odd. Almost instantly, my body starts to relax. The world shifts again. No, not the world, the shuttle. I feel a hard pull to the right, then left, then up. If the coffin wasn't pressed tight against me, I would sail through the room, smash so hard against a wall or a door or the ceiling that my bones would shatter. Zubiri was right. The coffins once promised death. Now, they are life itself. The pulling sensation eases. Then, it's gone. We are floating. My eyes droop. That smell, it's nice. I'm not stressed anymore. I'm tired, so very tired. I blink, or try to, but once I close my eyes, they won't open again. There's a moment before sleep takes me, a moment where the events of my impossibly short life play back in my head. We saw so many horrors. I killed Yang. We lost Latu. We lost Bello. We lost Elsafani. Tears flow from my dead friends. There is nothing I can do now. No reason to battle against the waves of despair coursing through me. They are dead, and I will never see them again. But despite our losses, our tragic and stupid losses at the hands of creatures who should not exist, I know my friends didn't die for nothing. I am proud of them all, and the survivors as well, because together, we won. We woke up in a prison. We were made to be erased. The grown-ups said we were property. They said we weren't people. We showed them they were wrong. The grown-ups, or monsters, or cherished, or whatever they are, don't care about us. They don't care what we believe in, what we stand for. They don't care what we like, or who we love, or what we think. They just want copies of themselves. They would kill the children so they could live forever. We were made to be like them, but we've earned a different path. They can't follow us. We can be whoever we want to be. We can make a new future now. If we make mistakes, at least those mistakes will be ours. As the darkness within my head swells to match the darkness without, one last thought fills me with peace before I drift away. We are the birthday children. We are on our way to Omeocan. We fly. You have been listening to Alive, book one in the Generations trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler, performed by Emma Galvin. 
produced by Adrian Galvin and engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Follow Scott on Twitter and Instagram, where his handle is at Scott Sigler, S-C-O-T-T-S-I-G-L-E-R, one word, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. Theme music is the song Unseen Horrors by Kevin McLeod. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.